If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts, and we're going to pick up in verse 19 of chapter 11. Now, those of you who have been walking through this exegetically with us will say, what happened to verses 1 through 18? 1 through 18 is a summary of the last 78 verses that we just studied together. So out of love and grace for you, I've moved to verse 19. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Um, is everyone awake? Everyone awake? Do you guys need to greet one another? All right. You know what? It's been a long time. Those of you who are still a little COVID sensitive. We get it. Just wave at people. But the rest of us, why don't we just greet one another and uh, then we'll start together. If you see someone that's just not quite as good looking as you, make sure you reach out to them and say hello. All right. Tim. Hey. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Am I on? Hello. 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 There we go. All right. Bring me up a little bit. There we go. That is entirely enough. We will call that biblical fellowship for the month of March. All right. So you guys are done. No more small groups. I'm just joking. All right. If you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to walk through, beginning verse 19. So I hope that kind of woke you up a little bit, because there is a lot of application here to the growth, the healthy growth of the church, and how, how an amazing contrast it is to how we try and grow churches today. And uh, so let's pick up in verse 19 of chapter 11. And really, verse 19 of chapter 11 is going to pick up where chapter 8, verse 2 through 4 uh, left off. You see, Acts isn't in specifically chronological order. We're going back in time to chapter, chapter 8, verse 4, and we're picking up right where it left off as, as, as everyone in Jerusalem is scattering because of persecution. And they are being dispersed, where we get the name Dispora, Dispora Jews, and they're going all over Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they're going to end up here in Antioch. Verse 19, So then those who were driven out of Jerusalem because of the persecution of Saul were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen when he was stoned on their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word of God to no one except the Jews alone because they're still under the impression that, you know, probably not, not good to do that. But then there were some who actually broke away, likely Hellenistic Jews, from men of Cyprus and Cyrene, well, now we know they are, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed uh, turned to the Lord. And news about them reached the ears of the mother church in Jerusalem that were full of Hebrew Jews. And they sent Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew, off to Antioch. Then they arrived. When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God. And he began to rejoice and encourage them all with full and resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit of faith. And and considerable numbers were were brought to the Lord. And he, he left for Tarshish to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he 
brought them to Antioch, and for an entire year they met in the church and they taught considerable numbers and disciples were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. Now at this time there were some prophets that came down to Jerusalem in Antioch, one of them by the name of Agabus, who stood and began to indicate that the Spirit, uh, through the Spirit there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Historically, you can track it back. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a, an offering, a contribution to relief of the brethren that were living in those areas in Judea. And as they did this, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders there. With, God, with that being said, let's ask for God's blessing. And we'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you. We come before you because you are God. We are not. We are in desperate need of you. We are so thankful that you loved us first. We are under no illusions that we earn or even saw the need for salvation except through your gracious work in our lives. Father, our salvation begins and ends with you. I confess my sins that I have committed this week, all of which take root from the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Father, I ask for your forgiveness. I pray that these people who belong to you, not me, this is not my kingdom, this is not my church. I pray that they would see Christ that he would be exalted. That he would increase. And I would decrease. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help me remember what I studied. Father, I studied really hard. and At this point in time, it's just mine to mess up. So I ask that you help me. I pray that you alone would be glorified. And I pray this and I ask this in your son's precious and holy name. And if you're awake this morning, say something. Nice, nice. Seminars, theme series, community conferences, entertainment, concerts, feel-good teaching, TED Talks, and branding. The growth pattern of today's church. It seems more and more today in the pursuit of marketing that every new church that, or really old church that is seeking to rebrand themselves just come up with, with naming themselves after random action verbs. When people tell me what church they go to, I'm not sure if they're talking about a church or a karate dojo. I don't know. Maybe that's my fault. I am slow. I am slow to learn. You'll say things like, what church do you go to? Well, I go to the next level. Of what? Next level of what? Is it a tall building? Or I go to Uplift or Gallivant. That's an actual name that someone gave me this week. Gallivant or Send or, or Arby's. We have the meat, all right? Which I think we do, all right? No. I go to the church called Elevated. Well, isn't that just old First Baptist Church? No, it's completely different. Now we're elevated. Maybe I'm just old. Now most of you go, yes, yes you are. You're old and crotchety, all right? Maybe I'm old or dumb, but I don't always understand the logic, all right? What, what, is, what, what does this mean? 
You know, I don't understand it. Now, with that being said, I want, to, I want you to hear this. There's nothing immoral or wrong about that. There's nothing immoral or unbiblical about naming your church after a random action verb. There's nothing wrong with that. It has always been my desire, and I have presented it to the elders, and so far, because of sin, they have rejected it. But I have presented to the elders a change name for Trinity. You know this name. I bring it up passive-aggressively through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I bring it up often. I think we should name ourselves Panera Bread Baptist church and just fill the building with the aroma of fresh bread with at least one one room being gluten-free of course i think that'd be a beautiful thing to do but what i'd like to do by using this very surface point is lean into something here that that is common in, in our approach to growing the church, and that oftentimes we do things simply to try and rebrand the church by promoting a style or a method in order to try and grow the size and, and, and the fact of the church. And in my humble opinion, oftentimes it, it may serve to grow the church, but really to grow it artificially. My friends... The church today is trying to grow itself through branding and social gimmicks. We promise shorter, more relevant, socially approved, multimedia-friendly sermons. We oftentimes are more concerned with the bandwidth of the Wi-Fi than than whether or not the Bible was even opened. We are event-oriented, program-driven. Our worship has become concerts. Our teaching has become advice. Truth is determined by feeling. And with all of that, I want to say this, it works. It works. Attendance often rises, but I'm not convinced in a way that grows the church of Jesus Christ. And today we will look at a church that will grow both numerically and spiritually in the city of Antioch. And it will have nothing to do with its name. It'll have nothing to do with its name. It'll have nothing to do with its advertising. Again, nothing wrong with those things. It will have nothing to do with its cultural relevance. In fact, this church will grow because it is counter to the culture in which it lives. Now there's a little key. There's a little key. So let's take a look at our text. And we're basically going to be living here. Now we'll have one more text after this. But we'll be living on the screen for a while. What I want you to see here is that this church is experiencing unbelievable growth. Unbelievable growth. Three times in, in Luke writes in here in the Acts to underscore that it is growing numerically. And not only is it growing numerically, but take a look at the very beginning here. It says, and when those who were scattered, those who were scattered, notice here, no names are given. This church was not founded by apostles. This church is not founded by pastors. This church is not founded by trained missionaries. I want you to grab this. In fact, this is the very first time in all of the book of Acts, as the church is being birthed out, that we experience today, this is the first account of ordinary believers of ordinary believers sharing and living out the gospel, and a church is coming out of that. 
There is immediate application here that we see. The health and growth of this church. I want to bring it into Trinity here for just a moment. The health and the growth of this church depends on everyday members living out Christ. Not everyone watching the pastors do their job. Amen? Okay, some of you are like, not sure. And by the way, us too. Us too. All of us living out our faith. Now, before we even get started, we have to understand the background study of Antioch to fully understand what's going on in this church and, and what kind of application that we can grab from it. So all those excited of a historical background study of a, a church that began in 300 BC and are thrilled about it, say amen. amen. <laughs> you such liars. Some of you tell the truth. But I get geeked out about this, all right? This is founded in roughly Antioch. In fact, it's spoken several times. Let's highlight them, all right? Antioch was established around 300 B.C. Its population, based on which books you read, but Josephus, uh, ancient Jewish historian, says that it was roughly around 500 to 600,000 people in population. In fact, it was the third largest city in the Roman world. It was famous, by the way, for its entertainment. It was famous for its entertainment. And here it is, their deliberate pursuit of pleasure. All right? The deliberate pursuit of pleasure, whether it be through hobbies or sexual immorality or whatever the case may be. In fact, it was famous for the worship of Artemis and Apollos, and that, that where the temple, just six miles outside of the city limits, where you would go to this, this, this temple and you would worship these pagan gods through ritual prostitution. There would be priestesses on the steps of this temple and you would have relations with them as a way to worship these gods of pleasure. It was the center of commerce, by the way, as well. And it was the crossroads for a lot of travel, a lot of trade, and a lot of other things, hence its size and its customs. Now, let me just summarize this. This church is located in the center of a multicultural, sexually immoral, corrupt city that is flush with cash and is full of many polytheistic, pantheistic, and pagan gods. This is, my friends, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. You see, finish this sentence. What happened in Antioch, what? Stayed in Antioch. Which, by the way, is not true, all right? It is not true. It was a city of many small g gods with a a church beginning to be birthed out of it through ordinary believers who worship the one true God. It is here that maybe we can already begin to see some application that we'll get to in just a little bit. Here's what we need to see together. This church is distinctly countercultural in their beliefs and in their lifestyle. This is a far cry, by the way, by how we try and grow church today in our 21st century here, is it not? The church today spends so much of their time trying to convince the world that we are just like you. 
And and I have to ask ourselves, what in the world is the church doing? Friends, let me just put it out there. The church of Jesus Christ, by nature of His character, should be and will be and must be countercultural to a lost and dying, sin-loving world. Amen? We just ought to be that way by definition. We are not to grow the church by becoming more like the world. We are to grow by becoming more like Christ in an ever-increasing counter-culture in our world. I would love, just personally, I've talked to some people about this, I would love to have some sort of art piece in the main entrance there, all right? For free, of course. But some sort of art, art prize. Now I've elevated it, right? Some, some sort of piece that, uh, of art that when people walked into our church, it was impressed upon them that they were entering a place where, where they are entering a counterculture assembly of believers that are not ashamed of Jesus Christ. Amen? We shouldn't get uncomfortable when subjects that make the world and us uncomfortable. We should, be, we should cling to that truth in a loving way. We live in a day where people claim to believe in Jesus Christ and then imitate the world. But that is not true Christianity. In fact, look at the text right here. It says this, a large number who believe turned to the Lord. Now I want to highlight those two verbs there, believed and turned. In this culture, they believed and turned. As always, believing in Jesus Christ is inseparable. Is inseparable from repentance. From repentance manifested in a changed life. Belief that does not cause us to become like Christ is not saving belief. The power of the gospel is not dormant. A belief that does not cause us to turn from the world and towards God is not saving belief. Repentance is to turn towards God and away from the world. The countercultural church is not to embrace what the world values in order to grow. The countercultural church is not to embrace the world's values in order to grow or in order to be accepted. We are to embrace and live out Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ cannot be divorced from repentance of sins. And it is with this truth that we must remember where this church is growing. I know in West Michigan now it's becoming less like this as we become a a post-Christian community, even here in in Grand Rapids. Highly religious, yes, but post-Christian just the same. That, That it might seem a little odd here, but in this city right here that we describe, We have to remember where this church is growing. In a polytheistic, immoral, money-loving city. I want you to notice what first caused this church to grow. It wasn't seminars. It wasn't a tent meeting. It wasn't all these things. Again, I'm not poo-pooing those. I'm trying to elevate the main thing. Speaking the Word and preaching Jesus Christ. Speaking the word and preaching Jesus Christ. In fact, this Greek word here for speaking literally just means personal conversation. 
is all it means is personal conversation. These average, they weren't pastors, they weren't missionaries, they, they weren't apostles, they weren't gifted orators. In fact, they are running from persecution with very little to own in their hands, looking for a new home. You want to know what's on their lips is Jesus Christ. The average ordinary believer laced Jesus not only into the way they lived, as important as that is in an immoral culture that is the culture of Antioch, Artemis, and Apollos, all right? Not only did they lace it into how they lived their lives, but they laced it into their everyday conversations. I am convinced today that the, by the word of God behind me and in front of me, that, that the most powerful event evangelism that the church could possibly know is people saying what they believe. Amen? Just lace it in. Just lace it in. And that's what they did. The average ordinary believer laced it into their conversations. Now, I, I must enforce a hard stop here. With humility, I've made a commitment to you to teach you the Scripture, even if it means I lose your approval. Even if it means I lose your approval. Please know I never want to be what is offensive about the Gospel. I do not want to be what is offensive to the Gospel. The Gospel itself is an offense. I do not need to add to that offense by being a... Give me some words. By being a what? Okay, thank you for your boldness. By being what? Anyone. I will make your answer correct, but I will not move on until I get an answer. Arrogant. I like that. Kind of hurts a little bit. All right. What's that? Soft. Okay, soft. Anything else? What's that? Fake. Or being a jerk. I don't want to add to that. So I want to say this in love. And here it is. Hmm. Notice, notice when they told people the gospel, they didn't dodge the hard matters or subjects of sin and repentance. They did not dodge, skip over, or miss the difficult subjects. Can I ask you a question? Do we have difficult subjects in our culture today that can be seem difficult to talk about in our world, in the church? Anyone at all? Of course we do. We almost feel as though, ah, don't bring that up. Don't say that. We have been conditioned to silence in the name of tolerance. And it is not tolerance, by the way. It's conformity. A subject we'll touch on in just a moment. Notice they didn't dodge hard matters or subject matters as it relates to sin and repentance. They did not water down God's morality in this city or, or message in order to draw more people or to have their approval. We see that in the words right here when they, they believed and turned. Turned from what? turn you get to turn you got to go towards something and you got to go away from something when you turn you can't be going in both directions at the same time amen 
Yet, for some reason, we have defined the word repentance, which means to turn, to mean I can do whatever I want in every direction I want. That's not truth. My friends, they turned to the Lord and away from the culture of this city. My friends, I love you. So let's say that, let me say this in love. We cannot dodge difficult subjects and teach repentance at the same time. We cannot dodge difficult subjects and teach repentance at the same time. So, in love, I say to the heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, non-binary, money-loving, self-serving, sin-embracing hearts, because at the end of the day, we are all sinners in desperate need of grace. Amen, church? We are all dead in our sins. Let us not give ourselves a pass on sins that we just understand. We are all sinners. But when one places their faith in Jesus Christ, we are, this is so simple. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are to turn. Amen? You turn. Away from immorality and the, and the love of self. We are to come out of our sexual immorality, not redefine it or excuse it. So in love, I say to you this morning, By the truth of God's Word, God created man, male, and female. He made sexual intimacy to be inside the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman for life. These are the will and the words of Christ. We can teach no other. We are not to lie. We are not to cheat, steal, covet, and so on. We are to turn from the world and turn towards Christ, not turn Christ into the world. You see, it doesn't matter how you are wired. It doesn't matter how I was born. It does not matter all those things. The question is, who is it I am choosing to identify with and love? God loves all of us. He desires all would come to know Him and then grow to love Him and have a desire to be like Him. And He offers full forgiveness to all those who must turn to Him. And it is for these clear, moral monotheistic, Jesus-speaking, Christ-centered, lifestyle-turning reasons. They had Christ on their lips. They laced Him in their conversations. And they turned out of this culture. They didn't participate in the worship of Artemis at the temple. They didn't go down into the red light areas and, and lie and cheat and steal and just go along with the pleasures of this culture because they wanted Christ. It is for these reasons that these ordinary believers with moral and monotheistic, Jesus-speaking, Christ-centered, lifestyle-turning reasons that is in the city of Antioch. Let that backfill, that 300 B.C., 500,000 sexually immoral, pleasure-loving culture of the city, that in that city... The, the unbelievable contrast of these people that they were first called Christians. And what made them Christians? Was it the action verb name on the front of the church? No. They lived out Christ. 
Christians literally means Christ men or Christ like. Now, this could have produced a whole wide spectrum of new believers in Christ in this city, would it not? Habits, by the way, habits die hard. Habits die hard. There is so much growth and sanctification for those joining the church right now, both doctrinally and morally. Can you imagine coming out of this culture and a Jew decides to talk to a, to a, a, a oh, what's that derogatory term they use? A goyim. Okay, a Gentile, this Jew that would just spit in your eye and then talk to you, shares Christ in, 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 in repentance, and you're in the city. Imagine how much growth and sanctification for those that are joining the church here, doctrinally and morally. I want you to hold on to that for a moment. We're going to come right back to it. Because soon, at the same time, the mother church in Jerusalem is getting word that Gentiles and Jews are worshiping together in Las Vegas. And alarms are going off. And this must be checked out. And look at who they send. They send Barnabas off to Antioch. By the way, the author Luke, he's from Antioch. He knows the city well. Now, Barnabas is not a highbrow Hebrew Jew. He is a Hellenistic Jew, a second-class Jew, if you will, before Pentecost in the church. He's one of the original seven quasi-deacons in Acts chapter 6 and 7. He is a Hellenistic Jew. All right, Their choice here is very crucial. Church, here's where we begin to see a very important thing, and then we'll wrap it all together here. It's a very crucial decision. All right, In a city like this, filled with Gentile and Jewish converts, what would have happened if they sent a rigidly legalistic or personal conviction hawk? Can you imagine that? In this city, in this new church, with all these new converts, both Jew and Gentile, all right, and, and they send some quasi-Pharisee there. No, they don't send a hawk. You know, a person who, I always personal conviction hawk, a person who protects sound doctrine by demanding everyone agree with them at the same time and be in the same place spiritually as them immediately. You see, there is a reason they sent Barnabas. This is a very gracious messenger they send. By the way, he's highly respected. He's very generous. He sold land and gave it to those in need. He's highly respected. One of the original seven. He was, by the way, the one who brought Saul and the Jerusalem church together when they would have nothing to do with them. He brought these two enemies together. Remember that in our studies. He was a big-hearted man. He was known to be, in fact, his name literally means son of what? What church? Encouragement. Notice who they send. Please allow me a question. Do you think Barnabas, when he, when he came up to this church in Antioch, freshly established in the Las Vegas of the ancient world, all right, when he gets there, does, and I want you to answer this, does Barnabas see a bunch of perfect Christians all matured in Jesus Christ in a city like this? Does he see all perfectly mature people? What's the answer? <laughs> no, not even close. Not even close. He saw a lot of 
imperfections. In fact, including the historical background study, let me tell you what he saw. He saw sex addicts. He saw sex addicts trying desperately to turn to Christ in his morality and struggling. He saw people who love money trying to break its hold on their hearts. He saw people who were trying to filter out pagan mythology and polytheism out of this new monotheistic faith in Jesus Christ. And like in the New Testament, it teaches us, he saw believers in all different spectrums of growth. If I could put up just a, a rude chart, if, if 1 through 10 measured our spiritual maturity in Christ, all right? A 1 being a new Christian, he, he just, he placed his faith and repented. That's a 0 or a 1. And then way over here is number 10. And that is just someone who's just having the fruit of the Spirit constantly falling out of their lives. When he got there, Barnabas saw all the digits in front of him. Here's my point. New believers do not stop all of their pagan scars and drop all of their pagan scars and baggage and habits the day of salvation. These believers struggle with them just like you and I struggle with them. But look at what Barnabas did. He didn't look at where they were spiritually and demand everyone be as he. Be as me immediately. He, check that out, he witnessed the grace of God in their lives. He saw that God was in the process of, of sanctifying them. He saw what God was in process of doing. Now, don't get me wrong. He saw that these new believers had to grow in their faith. He saw that. But, but look what he does here. Right where they are at, whether they're a one or they're a nine, because let's just be all honest here. None of us are going to be a ten, all right? He sees one through nine. And what does he do? He gets frustrated. He gets angry. And he starts making his demands. No, he rejoices. He rejoices. And he began encouraging them. Barnabas, son of encouragement. He began encouraging them with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Don't drift. Stay on track. Rather than judging them for where they were not, he met them where they were at and encouraged them to grow in the Lord. Too often we see people on the journey towards spiritual maturity and we demand exponential growth from those around us or we will fire what we call spiritual concern grenades into the body of Christ. Causing the church to look more like this over time. Can I ask you a question? Has there ever been a moment in the history of the, of the New Testament church where this slide has been true? Yes or no? In fact, how many here have ever seen it in the church? How many here are still picking shrapnel out of your body, all right? Because of your experience in the church. This is where I'm at. This is where you need to be. I'm going to pull the pin on my spiritual concern and I'm going to loft it over to my brother in hopes that his bloody body will encourage everyone else to see the truth. What? No. May I make this simple? Barnabas saw three and encouraged them to move to a four in maturity. He saw a four and encouraged them to move to a five and so forth. Rather than focusing on where they were not, he rejoiced and began to encourage them. Keep on going. 
Remain true to the Lord. Like God in His grace, He accepts us where we are at and graciously and progressively moves us to become more like Him. Here's a question, church, and I want you to answer it. How many here are thankful that God graciously works us forward and does not demand that we be instantly just like Him? Amen? Then let us then in return do the same for one another. Here's a question for us. What would have happened? What would have happened if Barnabas slapped these diverse believers with his expectations based on his maturity level only? What would have happened if he said, everyone like me now? Well, it would have just absolutely stressed or destroyed the church. Sometimes there's people who will come into the church and they'll wave their flag of biblical maturity around, demanding everyone meet them on their ground. Oftentimes the flag is made out of two things. And it is these two things that make it wonderful and potentially dangerous at the same time. They'll wave the flag on a biblical issue, which by the way is a good thing. We want to be true to the Word of God. But this biblical issue of maturity from someone who's further along, it will wrap it with personal discernment of their own around that biblical issue. And they demand it from someone who's not as far. And they can't even comprehend it. Hence the young child's going, what? What what is this? And that personal discernment about how to maintain that biblical issue, by the way, can be potentially dangerous. I often say to people, in areas of growth and biblical discernment, in areas of personal growth, i.e. the chart up there, where believers can have different convictions on the same issue, the deciding factor between believers who have different convictions on the same issue, the deciding factor is grace and unity. Grace and unity. It was Jesus who made this prayer. He said, I pray also for for those who believe in me, just as you are in me, Father, I am in you, that they may be one as we are one, so that they may be jerked to death to be just like me. Is that what it says? What's the word in blue? What's it say? Brought along, not not ripped to shreds, to complete unity. I want you to grab that church, all of us. Brought, not ripped to shreds. If it is an area of personal discernment or personal maturity, if you are an eight in maturity in Christ, and there's a another one is a three in their maturity, if you will. I know it's a crude chart, but just for the sake of teaching today. Your approach to that maturity gap must be determined by grace and unity. If I spoke with the words of angels, and I could move mountains, and I I don't have love, what am I, church? I'm nothing. I would dare say I'm destructive. It might be that the eight in maturity must be willing to meet that three by moving to five and asking that three to move to four, not demanding everyone move to eight. And by the way, the three shouldn't say, this is what I like and I will never leave this place. Here's my point. Unity requires sacrifice. 
Unity requires sacrifice. And a healthy church will have this dynamic happening hundreds of times in different directions, in simultaneous times in our, in our lives and during the week, all at the same time, because the desire for spiritual growth at the cost of biblical unity in the body will only serve to kill the church. If there is no sacrifice... We are not seeking growth in unity. Rather, we are seeking divisive conformity. And those are not synonyms, by the way. Can I ask you a question? What good would it do if an eight got all of their demands and they waved their flag of personal conviction triumphantly on the, on the hillside of the church, yet all around them are beaten brothers and sisters and bloody brothers and sisters in Christ? What good is the flag? Alexander McLaren hits us out of the park when he, when he says this. He says, I, I think oftentimes that the church is so busy thinking about their Christianity that we have lost complete sight and hold on Christ. Is that us? Is this, is this us? And for an entire year... They met to encourage these one through nines. And they did it through the teaching of the Word of God. And and there was considerable numbers. Nothing is more important to spiritual maturity than the teaching of God's Word. All things are secondary to it. Luke constantly shows that teaching is essential to evangelism and discipleship. A vital part of growing the church is not found in, in, in marketing schemes and name changes or cosmetic rebranding. The, the main thing is found in remaining faithful to the Lord and His teaching. May I just call a humble foul about a false choice often declared to the church by passive-aggressive boasters in West Michigan? Tell me if you ever heard this. And I don't want you to say amen because I'm not trying to, 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 to what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, trick you. Okay? Complicated word. I know, but I got it. Don't say amen to this because I'm not trying to trick you. But how many of you have ever heard this boasted out there? We must be fisher of men, not keepers of aquariums. What, short, what, what sort of short-sighted, unbiblical, false duality is this? You see, what we're promoting in this statement is this. We must, we must seek and save the lost and be fishers of men, not sit and maintain the church. Not maintain the aquarium. Into that I say, what? Are those our only two choices? Truth of the matter is, church, and you can amen this if you want, or you don't have to, we are called to do both. Amen? Both. The whole pastoral epistles in New Testament is all about keeping a healthy aquarium. So healthy, it gives unbelievable standards for deacons and elders and teaching and church boundaries and how to conduct ourselves so that the church, the aquarium, is healthy and clean and able to receive a fish that is caught.
had a good-intentioned uh, pastor the other day. I'm friends with him. Had a pastoral luncheon the other day. Kind of got caught up in the passion of the moment. And we're sitting around the round tables. And uh, he got up and he said this. He goes, well, the problem is we need to be fishers of men and not keepers of aquarium. And, of course, everyone, like, oh, that's so clever. Oh, <laughs> that's so clever. Sorry. I don't want you to know how I feel about it. All right. We're patting each other on the back for realizing we're not fishing enough, which is true, by the way. And I said, well, I disagree. And he said, how, boom, how in the world can you? I said, well, using your analogy, as biblical as it is, Christ said, I will make you into fishers of what, church? We must be fishers of men with the gospel, the true gospel, because there is no love without truth. If we are to use your analogy, biblical as it is, if you catch a fish, is it not our responsibility to grow that fish, which it is? Are we not to make sure that the aquarium that we put the fish in will promote health and growth? I said, who amongst us go fishing, catch a fish, and throw it into a septic tank? That would kind of defeat. Of course, we do have the Grand River. Different story, all right? Different story. That would defeat the purpose of fishing. The church does not, nor should it choose, between being fishers of men and keepers of aquariums. The church, believe it or not, is called and is capable of chewing gum and walking at the same time. To fish for men and keep aquariums that are healthy and strong so that the fish that we do catch will grow big and strong. There are far too many sick minnows in the church today. Amen? In our pursuit of growth. There are far too many sick minnows in the church of God because we have abandoned the teaching of the whole counsel and word of God in the name of going fishing. And by the way, sick minnows do not do a lot of fishing themselves. I dare say with the confidence of God's word before me, it is through strong biblical countercultural teaching of God's word that we will find more fishers of men in our churches today. We must make sure the aquarium that is the church is clean, healthy, and full of good food called church discipline, biblical teaching, Christian fellowship, and discipleship so that the fish that God puts on our evangelistic lines are not put in a place, or that they are put in a place where they will grow healthy and strong. You see, the whole point of teaching the Word of God is so that we change the way we think, the attitudes we hold, and the goals we chase. You see, church growth is not found in rebranding or random action verbs. It is not found in entertainment or programs. It's not found in avoiding hard teaching or issues that the Bible touches us on. It's not found in demanding a level four person in maturity become an instant eight so that you can feel more comfortable about them. It is found, and here it is, church, it is found in grace-filled, Jesus-loving, Bible-teaching, unity-discerning, Christ-like, countercultural Christians so that we will grow and remain more and more faithful to Jesus Christ in a world that wants nothing to do with Him. Let us be that kind of church. 
Let us be called in Grand Rapids because of how we live and what we say that we are Christ-like, not religious. I want to end with a short story. Alexander the Great, an incredible conqueror, conquered the entire known world at 23. He learned that in his army there was a soldier that was named after him. A soldier by the name of Alexander, who, by the way, was notoriously known to be a coward. Alexander said, bring that soldier to me. I want to meet him. So Alexander called that soldier before him and his knees are knocking and he said, is your name Alexander and are you named after me? The trembling soldier said, yes, yes, sir. My name is Alexander and I was named after you. And the general looked at him straight in the eye and he said, then either be brave or change your name. Christian, are you like Christ? If not, lose the name or embrace it, but no middle ground. Are you becoming more like Christ or less like Him? Own your name or at least have the intellectual integrity to abandon it. May it be said that we own our names because owning the name of Christ will actually grow the true church. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its challenge. Father, may our pursuit of you make us distinctly different from the world. May the fruit of the Spirit abound in us richly. Start with my heart. Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious name. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.